All right, good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to change up the schedule as we've been doing throughout the weekend. And so um, before we get into our morning worship, we are going to try to, hopefully, if there is time, have one just brief small group time before the worship as well, where we'll just give you an opportunity just sort of go around the circle in your small groups and share, you know, maybe just one thing that God has impressed on you during the course of this weekend. And uh, so we'll try to give you that time to wrap up with your small groups. But before we do, we want to jump into the Q&A. Um, and so you guys have some pretty good questions here, and I think we can kind of lump them into several different categories um, in centering around themes of like evangelism or spiritual formation and C.S. Lewis and things like that. So I'm going to kind of moderate this time and ask the questions that you guys have asked on Slido, maybe ask a couple of my own follow-up questions based on how uh, Jerry responds to it. And so we'll just sort of take it from there. But can we begin this morning with a word of prayer and we'll get into our Q&A session here, okay? God, we are so thankful for this weekend. We're so thankful of your ministry to us, particularly through your servant, Jerry Root. We thank you for his heart, his life. Uh, we see that um, he not only is a public speaker that comes with an expertise, but he's also a, a disciple who has walked with you for many years and shares out of the wealth of that experience of obedience to you. And so we thank you for the gift that you have given to us through him, we pray that even in this Q&A that uh, you would use his wisdom um, to share specifically the things that are burdening our hearts and to uh, help us in our own pilgrimage, our own journey to you. And so we thank you for this time, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, all right, well, let's just jump right in here, and I'll ask the... And we're going to try to weight it toward the things that got upvoted the most on Slido. As we're going through the session, too, you can feel free to... Uh, ask questions as we're going along. I can't guarantee we'll get through all the questions, though we'll see uh, how many we can get through. So we'll just start with the top, uh, top question here. How do you forgive someone who habitually hurts you in the same way or how to deal with it different, differently as you've been conditioned to react a certain way as well? So. Let me say one thing first. Whenever somebody is answering questions from an audience or a group of people, there's something artificial about that. I, I don't know very much. And I think all of us are basically pea brains. If you go to the Harvard, Harvard University, the Widener Library, there's 19 million volumes under that one roof. Who's read them all? Who knows all that stuff? I know a little bit. I'll try and answer out of the little bit I know. But please, we'll avoid as best we can the pretense of thinking that because I'm sitting up here, I, I know a whole lot. I know a little bit. But as far as this issue, how do you forgive the person who keeps hurting you? Number one, the issue of forgiveness is a non-negotiable, especially if you've prayed the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We need to continue to work on forgiveness so that we could continue to cultivate in ourselves that very heart that caused Christ to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But you also have a responsibility. The issue of forgiveness does not give you license to be masochistic and let people beat you up. Matthew 18, Jesus is very clear. If you've got something against your brother, you need to go and talk with them about this. 
There are ways you can do it. Psychologists will tell us that if you go and point your finger at them and start yelling at them, that's probably not going to resolve much. But if you go to them and say, you know, when this happened, I felt hurt. And you tell them what the consequence of their action was and how it affected you. That usually gives you a little bit better entree. So you're not so much accusing them, but saying when this kind of behavior takes place, I felt hurt. And in the future, I would like it if you wouldn't do this to me. Now you've given them an opportunity to stay in the relationship by virtue of choices they get to make. If they don't change, and they're a brother or sister in the body of Christ, Matthew 18 says you take another person with you and talk to them about this behavior. If they still don't respond, then maybe some church discipline comes up. You tell it to the church. By the way, the it, the antecedent to the it in Matthew 18 is not the person's dirty laundry. The goal is not to shame another person. It's instead to say that they were unresponsive about changing behavior when they were properly confronted. And you know the verse that says, where two or more are gathered together in my name, I'm in their midst? That has nothing to do with worship. It's one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It has to do with the fact that if you follow Matthew 18 properly, you can be confident that God will be with you in the judgments you're making along this way. The other thing, too, is if the person persists say it's a friendship and it's not a church-related issue, the person persists in the behavior, you do not want to be connected with somebody with that level of toxicity. And it would be better for you if you extricated yourself from that relationship if this person has, by virtue of their behavior, a destructive uh, characteristic where they continue to hurt people around them. And I think that that's what you do. You, you, you can't just extricate yourself without talking with them first. Part of your maturity will be that you will learn to go and talk with the person in the hopes of bringing about some resolution. So you don't, I, I, I know people, they don't like somebody over here, so they talk to somebody over here about that person. That's not mature behavior. That's gossip. Uh, I know people who don't like this person over here, and they hold contempt in their heart towards them, but they've never talked with them. Maybe this person just didn't see. I don't know, have all of you lived a, a life as pure as a driven snow that nobody's ever had to come and talk to you about behavioral problems in your life? I've had people that feel like it's their mission to tell me about these things. The unexamined life is not worth living, and if I'm not examining my life, other people will feel the obligation to do this for me. Um, how many of you have uh, gone through life where maybe you blew your nose before you left the house and you didn't look in the mirror one last time, there was a booger hanging out of your nose? Everybody you looked at looked at you sort of funny, you know? Or you find out, you men, that your zipper's down. Or you women, that you've got some eyeshadow out of place and you've got a big nick over here of black coming down the side of your face. Do you want to go through your day and have people look at you funny and not tell you about that? Or would you rather have them say, you need to pull up your zipper, you know, or you need to do, take care of the booger in your nose? I want to hear about that stuff rather than walk around like that. How about soul boogers? <laughs> How about those things in your soul or your character that are goofy? Do you want to keep walking around and have everybody say, man, that guy's a goofy as $3 bill? 
Or do you want to have somebody tell you about it? Some people, they have these actions and they don't know different because nobody's ever talked with them. So those would be some things I'd say. Could I add, as a follow-up to that, um, would you adjust anything of what you just said if that person that's hurting you is a spouse? Well, if it, you should talk with them in a mature way like I just described. But if there's still no response, you could say to your spouse, I, I really think we need some counseling. I think we've come to a place in our marriage where we, because we love each other, we want to go deeper, but I don't think we can get there on our own. We need somebody to help us chart a course. We need to have an objective GPS to find out how to move to the next steps. Let's go for some counseling. It's interesting to me, though, how many people are threatened by that kind of thing. My guess is if you're threatened by counseling, you're not secure enough yet in the love of God. Who would be threatened by something whereby they could get better? Like I said yesterday or the day before, the roof leaks, we get a roofer. The car breaks down, we take it to a repair shop. The washing machine breaks down, we bring in a, a repair person. We treat our appliances better than our relationships. Why wouldn't you say, if my spouse feels like there's, it's not going so well, I, I want to outrun my spouse to the counselor, to have somebody help us walk through and learn how to resolve this. There's also an interesting passage in Exodus when the plagues are coming upon Egypt. And Moses says to Pharaoh, let my children go, and if you don't let them go, these plagues are going to come. So they have this one plague of frogs. Most of the judgments against the Egyptians are against their false gods, and they had a frog god. So all these frogs are everywhere. Pharaoh finally calls Moses and says, you got to get rid of the frogs. And Moses says, when? And he says, tomorrow. Pharaoh was willing to spend one more night with the frogs. It's nonsensical. Why do you spend one more night with the frogs? Why not get it resolved? Why not say, let's go learn and grow? If you're threatened that your spouse might be right, all the more reason you should do this. Or maybe the spouse may say, we need counseling, and it's the spouse who's aggressive. Go get counseling. The therapist will see that, and the therapist will be able to, 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 to bring it to light, and you can deal with these things. But the outcome will be healing in the relationship. I'd rather have a happy relationship with my wife than spend one more night with the frogs. Thank you. Thank you for that, Jerry. Maybe, um, I know Esther's question was ranked higher, but this third one is pretty similar. And I don't know if you felt you've added, answered it adequately through it or if you want to add anything. But um, Oh, I guess it's the fourth one here. If we haven't achieved the forget part of forgive and forget and therefore haven't fully forgiven, what does real forgiveness look like if it still hurts? Um, I, think, I think we're going to persist in these things. Jesus said, don't forgive seven times, forgive 70 times seven. Deep hurts may take time to process. What's not appropriate is to give up or to not be willing to continue to engage. But if you're really having a hard time letting go, then go to a counselor and have the counselor walk you through that labyrinth. They may see things objectively that because you're involved in the middle of it, you can't see with as much clarity. And so I think that that would be a helpful way. Then uh, Esther is the only one that had the courage to put her name to her question, and so 
How would you suggest processing through wounds in which you have no bitterness or hurt feelings, but no has affected or impacted you? Uh, just continually asking the Holy Spirit? Well, how do you know that it's affected or impacted you if you have no hurt feelings? I'm curious epistemologically how that works. My guess is if you know, then there's probably something there that's, that's percolating. Um, but if you don't know how to deal with it, again, go get some new set of eyes on the issue and ask somebody. I, I, I could see um, maybe somebody was molested when they were a child. This is, the, 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 the tentacles of this go deep in us when we've been hurt like this. And, and my guess is there are some things that a good trained Christian counselor and therapist could walk you through to help you get past that. It may be that it doesn't affect you as much emotionally, but it still affects you behaviorally because you've embraced certain behaviors to accommodate for the hurt. I, I would go to get a professional to guide you. A lot of this stuff, it's, it's deeper than what we can manage on our own. Great, thank you. I told your pastor that because of some of the, especially yesterday morning's meeting, that his office is probably going to be packed with people wanting to come for advice. And I'm going to hand out your business card at each one of those meetings and <laughs> invite you to see you at Wheaton. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, shifting gears here a little toward evangelism. In terms of evangelism, how have you dealt with moral people who feel happy and believe they're living a great, uh, living great life, <clears throat> but showing little need uh, little need for God? Well, I, I, there's a few ways you could go about this. One, love them. Stay in relationship with them. There may come a moment where they find their present conceptual framework can't manage the crisis of an hour. Um, I have met people before who, uh, C.S. Lewis said he went through a time where he, he had these longings and he would attach the longing to some object. And it was what he later would call a false infinite. He would think this would satisfy him. And then he would be disappointed and he would untether and tether to something else. And then untether and tether to something else. He called it the dialectic of desire. I've met people before who if you meet them while they're in this ascendancy of thinking this new thing's gonna fulfill them, this new relationship, this new money-making scheme, this new hobby or interest, you probably aren't going to reach them. But you can become close friends with them during that time that when all of a sudden the crashing disappointments follow, you'll be there to nurture and encourage and say, it really wasn't that thing, was it? So that's a way. The other thing, too, is we can be living a relatively happy life. But the issue is not happiness or unhappiness. The issue is reality as well. And sometimes if you can appeal to a person on a rational level about the nature of truth, about the nature of the truth claims of Christ, these claims of his are either true or false. And it doesn't make any difference if I'm relatively moral or relatively happy. The truth claims remain the same. We live in a culture that has lost its moorings as far as truth. Traditionally, truth has been understood. Uh, truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. So there's a real world that exists independent of my thoughts about it. How can I get my thoughts in sync with that real world? 
And a lot of times, we don't consider what the reality is. We have a friend who has these feelings, or we have a friend who has this experience. And so the friendship with that particular person trumps any sense of what might be real or accurate. And consequently, then, we can go off the rails at that particular point. So to, to talk with the person who's moral and, and praise them even for their good behavior and so on, their fidelity to their spouse, their love of their children, those are all good things. But if they say, I don't want anything to do with God, then talk with them about the realities of, of this objective world. And you got a guy like Mortimer Adler, he was a philosophy professor at University of Chicago. He wrote a book years ago called How to Think About God, A Guide for the 20th Century Pagan or Skeptic, whatever it was. And he believe, believed he set forth rational arguments for God's existence beyond a reasonable doubt. That's pretty remarkable. His wife was a Christian. He wasn't. She put him up to it. And I read this, and, and I started praying for him every day in 1980 when I read this till 1982, when I finally said, I need to go talk to him. So I called him up, his secretary, Marlis, and I said, do you ever talk to mere mortals? Does he, does he ever talk to mere mortals? You know, this guy's an eminent guy. He was the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia Britannica, did the great books of the Western world, wrote some 60 books and so on. I said, does he ever talk to mere mortals? And I went down and met with him and talked with him, and he said he hadn't been given the gift of faith, but he believed the arguments were conclusive. He basically used a modified version of the, uh, Aristotle's um, uh, four causes and Thomas Aquinas's five ways. But the compelling nature of the cumulative effect of the various arguments for God's existence, ontological, cosmological, teleological, pragmatic, and moral arguments, are compelling. But that doesn't mean a person will commit, you know. Uh, it may be com compelling that the building's on fire and somebody said the building's on fire. I may smell the smoke, but I still may not run out of the building. It's kind of foolish, but some people still don't respond. So you can make the, 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 the factual argument rooted in truth, rooted in the truth claims of Christ and so on. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is a great example of how to go about that. But nevertheless, um, stay friends. Try and bring it on the, on the uh, intellectual level, not just the level of feelings or morally feeling good. Piggyback on, on that, uh, when evangelizing, have you had to deal with the issues of, quote, bad acts of other Christians? And yeah. How do you become an apologist for that, or if you do it all? Yeah. So, so, um, Thomas Aquinas said in the Summa Theologica, nothing which implies a contradiction exists in the divine omnipotence. Or, excuse me, that's not the quote I wanted from Aquinas. I got to put the cursor on a different point in my brain here. <laughs> he said, um, my wife says my mind's like lightning, one flash, then total darkness. <laughs> um, uh, he said this, an abuse does not nullify a proper use. An abuse does not nullify a proper use. If you judge any segment of society by its worst examples, nobody could stand. And you can find bad professors, bad students, bad lawyers, bad politicians, but that doesn't mean you should be dismissive of the whole class because you found the one bad one. I think if we find Christians who are 
doing hurtful things to others, it should be especially egregious because they say they're the follower of the Christ who loves us, and this seems incongruous. We can maybe go talk to the Christian who's living this way and, and, and hopefully restore them. Or if this person was hurt by somebody and that person who hurt them isn't part of our world, you know, they, they was maybe in a place where they grew up or something that happened a long time ago. I think we can say to this person as a surrogate, I might have mentioned it the other day, I am a Christian. The story you just told me is so sad. Will you let me stand in the place as a surrogate of that person who hurt you and ask your forgiveness for what happened? And the reason why I want to ask your forgiveness is I wouldn't want anything to keep you from knowing how deeply you're loved by God. The other thing, too, is if this person has been holding this vendetta against this Christian, that's not psychologically helpful, helpful for them either. Uh, bitterness, Anne Lamont said in her book, uh, Traveling Mercies, which is a result of not being willing to forgive. Bitterness is like you drinking the rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It seems to me that it's to our own more uh, psychological health, we need to learn to untether from the deep pains that others have caused. But there, there, I, I heard a story about John Stott, and this guy went to talk to John Stott, and he was very angry about some behaviors of non-Christian, or behaviors of Christians towards him. And he went on and on and on talking about this with Stott. And Stott finally said, you know what, I hear you. That's really sad. But, but tell me what you think about Jesus. Let's look at Jesus. And I think this is, this, this is where the compelling thing comes through. So to ask forgiveness, to say you wouldn't want anything to keep them from... Um, um, seeing how deeply they're loved by Christ and to look at Christ, I think those are ways we can go. I, I think that's so powerful to ask, stand in that place of uh, Christians who might have hurt other non-Christians in the past and, mm. and ask forgiveness. I think, I think that's huge. Um, <clears throat> staying on that theme of evangelism, I'll, I'll ask both of these questions together and then I guess you can answer them how you want. Are there any discipleship books or materials that you would highly recommend to new believers, and then what protocol do you use when following up with people who show an interest in the gospel or accept Christ? Weekly meetings, direct them to another ministry? Yeah. When I lead a person to Christ, I always take them to John 6, 47. The passage says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I say, did you just believe? They say, yeah. I said, what do you have? They say, eternal life. Then I take them to John 17, 3, so that they'll see eternal life isn't just length of days or time, but length of days has a quality to it. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So I said eternal life is getting to know Christ forever, the one who loves you most. And then I take them to the parable of the sower, John 13. I explain the parable to them, and I say, which soil would you like to be? I've never had anybody say, I'd really like to try and shoot for the weedy one. You know, people, I want to shoot for mediocrity. People always say, I want to be fruitful, and I say, so do I. How about if we start meeting each week to see if we could grow in faith together? 
And that's how I set up the follow-up meetings. And just this last year, I led a guy to Jesus in an FCA meeting, and we started meeting weekly by virtue of that. A couple years ago, I, I led a guy to Christ, and we met every week by virtue of that. The guy that uh, a couple years ago, he's off in ministry full-time. He's on the mission field now. Isn't it cool? But this other guy is very interested in missions, the one that I've been meeting with this last week. I don't think a person needs to be a missionary um, in, in a formal sense. I had a business leader. He used to be a president of a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He says, I long for the day when a church will call up a couple and say, we are deploying this church with our blessing this morning as we pray over them to go into the mission field. And the guy's a businessman. And we're sending him to his work this week in Chicago. So we begin to validate not only those who go overseas to missions, but those who go across the cubicle at work to missions. Okay, so that's important. Well, anyway, so that's how I start follow-up. As far as resources, I, I've taken probably 280 people through this Navigator uh, follow-up program that they set up, and I found it very helpful. It was distributed by Christian businessmen years ago, and it was called Operation Timothy. It was a two-book, six, uh, six studies in each book, 12-session follow-up program. Pretty simple. You, you give the booklet to the other person. They fill in the parts, look it up in the scriptures. You meet and go through what they've discovered that week and talk about it, pray together, and go through the next week, the next week. The last session is you take them out sharing the gospel. So the goal is to take the person who's a new believer and bring them to a place where they're willing to reproduce a reproducer. Um, so the uh, Christian Businessmen doesn't distribute anything like the two-section one, two-booklet two one. They now have a four-booklet thing, but it's very helpful. Each one is six Bible studies. So the follow-up thing is 24 weeks you meet to bring them to the place where they would be willing to do this. When I was a new Christian, the guys that led me to the Lord did a follow-up thing with me, Campus Crusade for Christ. It was called the 10 Basic Steps Towards Christian Maturity. You can go to the Crusade website, or crew they call it now, and you can download these Bible studies. There were, it was 10 basic steps, there were 11 of them. I was a PE major, so I never questioned that, you know, it just, it was okay. But the first one is an introductory one just on who Jesus is. Spending six weeks studying who Jesus is, falling in love with Jesus, that's important to apostasy proof a person's faith. Then the others went on to things like assurance of salvation, uh, how to be a student of the Bible, highlights of the Old Testament, highlights of the New Testament, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how to be committed to a fellowship of believers, how to learn to give of your time and energy and resources. Um, and on it went, how to overcome temptation, these sorts of things, basic things that we would need to know. So I think the crew, crusade, InterVarsity has good stuff, uh, Navigators has good stuff. Find, experiment around, buy a few of these things, go through them, see which ones you like the best, whichever one you feel most comfortable with, go use it. There are boatloads of follow-up material that are out there. One thing I could add is, um, you know, Jerry is staying at the Hampton Inn, and we are too, and I was just coming down this morning, getting breakfast, ready to check out, and um, I realized he's on a first-name basis with the front desk clerk already. And then I heard her say to you, I don't know, I was just, I don't know if you noticed I was right by you, but I heard her say to Jerry, uh, I missed you. <laughs> 
And I have never had a hotel clerk say they missed me. <laughs> so clearly he's had some kind of interaction with her that I have not. And uh, I, I think it's just some living testimony as to this is not something he says on a stage when the lights are on him, but this is literally his life, you know, just... She's coming over for Thanksgiving. <laughs> no, I would you, believe that. You, I would believe that. You, you know what, though? At the end today, when we were checking out, I was with the Matthews, and when we were checking out, um, I went to her one last time, and I said, I took her hands. Her name was Callie. I said, Callie, it's been fun getting to know you over these last couple of days, but I have to say something to you. She said, yeah, what is it? I said, Callie, the God of the universe knows you, and he loves you. She lit up in a big smile. I said, Callie, he loves you. She said, you know what? I know him too, and I love him too. And I said, it was evident in the way you treated us when we came here. And you were able to affirm her. If they're a non-Christian, you can push them, nudge them closer to Jesus. If they're a Christian and you sense it in them, then you can, you can encourage them. We need to be encouraging each other. So anyway, thanks. Yeah, that was, that was a great just as, for me to witness, uh, just as a bonus <laughs> to this retreat. So, um, which Christian classics are on your must-read list? Um, any any books titles that you? Would yeah, well, you know, through C.S. Lewis, you can't read. He opens more than wardrobe doors. You can't read him without wanting to read the books he refers to. So through Lewis, I got to some of the Greek playwrights I liked, um, Homer course, Iliad and Odyssey, but Plato and Aristotle, I love, and I read them with some degree of frequency. It was uh, um, Whitehead who said, Alfred North Whitehead who said, all philosophy is basically an asterisk to Plato, and, and the dialogues are hilarious. You should read Plato sometime. They're just, I love them. They're deep, they're pithy, but there are places in them where you're just laughing your head off. And then also, um, Lewis wrote a book called The Discarded Image. And in this book, he was writing about the medieval worldview. We're always at risk when we read books that we might project our 21st century value on old books. And he says, you can't do that. You'll miss out on what this person is saying. He said, you think you need notes when you read Milton? Imagine the notes Milton would meet, need if he showed up today. What's a DVD? What's a cell phone? What's digital? You know, and, and what's, a, what's a, an automobile? I know auto means self and mobile means move, but how does somebody, something move itself without a horse, you know? What's a toaster? You know, these sorts of things. A hairdryer? What is that? And, and if times have changed that much, you need to understand the past a little bit to really benefit. So Lewis wrote this book called The Discarded Image on the medieval worldview, so we could be informed when we read a medieval book. He said the number one most influential book on medieval literature is the Bible. We should know the Bible. But number two, he said, second most influential book was Boethius's The Consolation of Philosophy. It was the most translated book in the Middle Ages. It was translated by Chaucer, translated by Queen Elizabeth I, translated by uh, Alfred the Great. And he said that a person wasn't considered educated up to 200 years ago if they didn't know that book. When I read that in Lewis, I thought, well, I'm an uneducated person. I'd never even heard of the book before. 
I go to the bookstore. I say, you don't happen to have Boethius as the consolation of philosophy on the shelf, do you? They said, yeah, it's right here. Who's writing books today that will still be on the shelf 1,500 years from now? How many of you as Christians have struggled with the idea of free will and God's foreknowledge, trying to wrestle putting that together? Any of you? Or am I the only one that ever had that struggle? Book five of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, he answers it with such simplicity, you say, why did I ever struggle with that? But because we're so disinherited from our past, we don't benefit from the wisdom of the past. What Boethius wrote about it, Chaucer writes about it in Troilus and Cressida. Pander, one of the characters, has a long description of, of Boethius's argument. Uh, Milton writes about it in uh, 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 Preface to, excuse me, uh, Paradise Lost. You've got Dante referring to it in the, um, in, in the Divine Comedy and so on. All these are Christian books I think it would be good to be familiar with. And I've read them, and I have loved them, loved them. Maybe it's not your cup of tea. A good rule for reading these kinds of books is if you pick it up to read it and you don't get into it, don't read it. There's too many other things to read. But don't prejudice yourself towards it because it may be the very book you need five years from now. Um, but another, another group of, uh, of authors, Charles Williams, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, my word, it's a book I've read over and over again. Boethius, as I mentioned. Pascal's Pensee. This is, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you how I met Pascal, right? My older brother was really smart. And he would talk to me about the great books of the Western world. So one of the very few times I went to the library when I was in college, I went to look at the great books. And I saw volume 33. I pulled it off the shelf because it was my jersey number. <laughs> and it was Pascal, the Pensee in the provincial letters. I don't know how many times I've read through Pascal, but I have enjoyed that book. Um, he was writing an apology for the Christian faith. He died before he finished it. His sister, Gabriella, came and pulled all the pieces together and put them in some sort of chronological order. Some of the things are just a sentence long. Some of them are a couple pages long and everything in between. You could read that book in the bathroom, and you won't get hemorrhoids reading it at that pace because <laughs> it's, the sections are so short. But it is a great, great book. And every day you could leave it with some deep thought. You're saying, man, and it'll get you thinking deeper about your faith. Anyway, that's just a few, but you could get to them through Lewis. You could get to them through, through other people. Usually what happens is if you're reading like this, the reading works like the, the, the trunk of a tree. Let the trunk be the Bible. That should be the heart of your reading, I think. But as you branch out, I, I've had people say, I don't need other books. I've got the Bible. I say, I don't think you're reading the same Bible I'm reading because my Bible doesn't shut me down and narrow me. My Bible opens me up to a wider world, and I want to understand that wider world better. There's some people who say, if, if it's a farmer and that farmer is putting in 14 hours a day and he only has time for one book, I say you're reading the right book. But that's not the case with most of us. We could read our Bible, and we could read some other stuff. If you're only reading the Bible, and you're reading it in an arrogant way, it won't be long before you'll be treating the Bible like a ventriloquist treats his dummy. C.S. Lewis said in Reflections on the Psalms, the worst of bad men are religious bad men. The quicker I'm willing to die for my faith, maybe the quicker I'd be willing to kill for my faith, or paint a thus saith the Lord across my own opinions. 
So here's the Bible, and I'm using it like a ventriloquist dummy, letting it say what I want it to say. Those are the kinds of people who are obnoxious and have other people say, well, this Christian hurt me. Why do I want to follow Jesus? I think if I'm reading widely and I'm understanding the Bible in that larger context, it'll help me. I can tell you stories about that, but you might, might have other questions instead. Let's, uh, would you, we're going to just, I apologize because we're going to try to wrap things up here in just a few minutes um, to give you enough time for small group and to have worship time. Um, <clears throat> skip ahead a little here to I, th I find personally this question kind of intriguing what advice would you give to your younger self if you could go back into the past yeah <laughs> that guy was pretty goofy I'd probably say chill a little bit you know I think when I was young every issue was an issue to die for now I'm older, I think there are some issues to die for, but there aren't very many. And I think I would tell him to chill a little bit. Um, I think I would also tell him, don't be afraid of questions. I don't know if I mentioned it. I think I did in, in The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis said, if our religion is objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we begin to discover what we do not yet know and need desperately to know. Don't be afraid of questions and, 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 and um, challenges. I think of my students at Wheaton right now. And every once in a while, I'll meet some student 20 years down the pike, and they're not walking with Jesus. And I think to myself, what happened to that student? I think to myself, how can I apostasy-proof students' faith now? And I found that two things I've been working on. I had eight small groups of students I met with every week this year. And, and, and a couple of them, we worked on some of these things. Number one, we spent six months just ask, ask, answering this question. If you knew Jesus loved you, what difference would that make in your life? And if you knew Jesus loved this person you met, even a person you may disagree with, what difference would that make in your life? So I think this is something I would want that younger Jerry to know. The second thing, too, is I say, what are your toughest questions? Bring them on. Don't be afraid to look at them. Um, it may be that you'll have to prune some things that are false in your present understanding of things. It may be that you'll find answers to those problems. You know, I, 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 I finished my Bible for the 47th time a week and a half ago, I think. I've read the New Testament 31 times, and I'm in my 32nd read through the New Testament. Every time I read it, didn't I mention this already here? No, every time I read it, I see something I haven't seen before. After all those reads, I've read my Greek Bible twice through. Every time I read it, I see something I, I, I haven't seen or noticed and I think this testifies the omniscience behind this book. But every time I read it, I also see something that doesn't make sense to me. And so I just sort of set it aside, put it in the pending tray like a scientist would while they're waiting for their experiment to percolate. Put it in the pending tray. The next time or two I read through, I begin to see the answer to this question because I didn't run from it. I wasn't dismissive about it. I just put it there. When I find the answer to that, it once again reaffirms my faith more deeply. 
Once in a while, I'll meet a person and say, oh, I read the Bible. There's a lot of incongruities in it. I'm not interested. I said, what you're saying doesn't affect me much because I've read it a boatload of times, and I've seen how many of these get resolved over time. So for you to reject it at first read doesn't seem to me you're really inclining to understand. So I'll say to my students, let's look at the worst things you can bring on. And we don't have to come up with the absolute answer, but if we could come up with a probable answer of how we could resolve this, we could then be confident and stay inclined until maybe we find an even more robust answer that makes sense of all the data. And I want to apostasy proof my, my students' faith. If I was talking to the younger Jerry, I'd say, immerse yourself in the love of God, find your confidence there, and don't be afraid of the questions. Don't be afraid of the difficulties. Stay inclined. If God's really big, it's natural that we with our pea brains will see some things that we don't quite understand yet. Matter of fact, if you think you've got it all understood, or if you don't have any doubts, or you don't have any questions, you're delusional because you think you've achieved omniscience. Don't be surprised if you have to wrestle through some incongruities. Is that okay? Very good. I would say to the younger Jerry, be very proud of the man you become <laughs> later in life. Yeah, I'm going to wrap up our time right now. Is that I wish okay? you could have been there to talk to my mother. You could have been there to talk to my mother-in-law about that. I, you know. So when it, someone will invent a time machine, we'll be able to go back there and yeah. deal with that brokenness and <laughs> all of us. Well, let's uh, thank Dr. Jerry Rue for this time, and uh, it's been awesome. Even this Q&A session.